Uh, just also mention we're going to have some baptisms today. Most of you are familiar with that, know that it's going to happen. And uh, that means that after, um, uh, after I'm done preaching, we're going to have three young people actually give their testimonies. Uh, and then we will proceed outside and uh, have a baptism like we did a few weeks ago. It promises to be a, a, good, a good time. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I want to begin this morning and talk to you about the golden toad. This toad is. I'm not sure I've ever begun a sermon talking about a, a frog before. Um, this is called the, the golden toad. Sometimes it's called the orange toad. Uh, sometimes it's called the, the Monte Verde Monteverde toad. Um, it was once abundant in the high altitude north region north of the city of Monteverde, Costa Rica, is where this frog lived. Uh, it was first discovered in 1964 by herpetologist Jay Savage. He studied this frog and he wrote about it. And uh, the golden toad's main habitat was on this cold, uh, this cold high ridge, mountainous ridge called the Briante. And uh, these frogs would emerge in, in late March through April to mate for the first few weeks in rainwater pools amongst tree roots where they'd lay their eggs. And, and in 1987, uh, uh, an American ecologist, herpetologist, Martha Crump, studied these frogs, totaling 1,500 of them. And uh, she was discovering their mating patterns. And uh, she discovered that 43,500 eggs were dropped or laid. But among those, she only found 29 tadpoles because there was a drought that year. And in fact, that drought proved deadly as the last sighting of a single male golden toad was on May 15, 1989. This toad has become extinct. It's been classified as extinct by the International Union for Conservation of, of Nature. And, and several different reasons have come into that. Um, it's, it's possibly because of the, the drought uh, it's probably the biggest, but also the restricted range. Like they only lived in this one place. They hadn't populated uh, around a, a long ways from that. Global warming, of course, has become the blame to blame for many, many things nowadays. Um, or perhaps a fungus infection, or maybe some pollution. Got it all. But this frog no longer exists. This population of frog, they become extinct. Now, this morning we're not going to talk about extinct animals. We're going to talk about Israel. We're going to talk about her decline, which led some in Paul's day to ponder even their extinction, whether indeed they, they would be extinct, whether or not God rejected his people, and whether believing Jews would be extinct or not. So our text this morning comes from Romans chapter 11, the first six verses. If you want to take your Bible and open there, that'd be a, now's the time to do that. Romans 11, 1 through 6. You see, Paul introduced his subject in verse 1, and he's going to answer his question in the next verses. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, 
It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In verse 1, we see Paul asking this question. He says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? The question. It's really this question governs all of, of chapter 11. It is the, the culminating question of what Paul's been getting at from chapter 9. For chapters 9 through 11 deal with the sovereignty of God, but particularly it deals with the question of the salvation of the Jews. Now, like, like today, in Paul's day, Jews primarily had rejected the gospel. And today, Jews primarily reject the gospel today. And, and that's, I'm not sure if you realize it or not, but that's a massive theological problem. And it's huge implications upon our life because if the Jews who'd received the great promises of God were in unbelief and not believing in the Messiah, then what about us? How secure can we be in the great promises of God? Like, for instance, Romans chapter 8 is, is what has stemmed this whole thing. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Look at the beginning of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 8. That's why that chapter is called the great chapter 8. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you've trusted and believed in Christ, you need not fear any judgment whatsoever. The, the verdict has come down. You are innocent. You are not condemned. He will not punish you for your sins because he's already promised punished Jesus in our, our place. And, and that's a grand promise of salvation. Is it in Christ Jesus we are not condemned? The end of the chapter gives a great promise as well. I am sure, verse 38, 39, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a wonderful promise that God's love is so great. No love is higher. No love is deeper. No love is stronger like we sung today. Nothing can get between us and God's favor for us. I mean, nothing. Paul goes over and over and over again. No place, no being, no time, nothing. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. These promises of Romans chapter 8 are astounding. There's a problem. Israel received some similar promises in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read a few for you. God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 17, verses 6 and 7. God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. An everlasting covenant between God and Abraham and all his seed. It's a wonderful promise. Or, or, or God's promise to Moses. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. Here he is. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be your God. Psalm 89. God's promise to David, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It's a promise to David, a throne for all generations. Isaiah 43. Who made you, O Israel? He who made you says, do not be afraid, for I have bought you and you are 
and made you free. I've called you my name and you are mine. Isaiah 54 verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. My loving kindness shall not depart from you. And so here's the problem at the end of Romans 8. Israel, who received these great promises that God would be God to them, that he would bless them with an everlasting covenant, he would give them a kingdom forever, that his steadfast love would not depart depart from them. Israel, by and large, was unbelieving and apart from these promises. And it appears that God's promises to them weren't fulfilled. And so what credibility do we have of chapter 8's promises if we see in Israel the promises not not fulfilled. So if, if God failed to keep his promises in the past to Israel, what assurance do we have that the Romans 8 promises will come true to us? It's a huge problem. I'm not sure you felt it. You should feel it. If you read Romans, you, you feel it. So Paul spends three chapters dealing with it. The unbelief of Israel. And particularly, though, he says, the unbelief does not nullify the promises of God. So let's, let's just begin a little bit by way of review. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Romans 11, so let's, let's kick it back up. Romans 9, verses 1 and following. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself could be accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, the Jews are lost in their sins. I wish that if possible, I could go to hell in their place. That's what I wish. If only they could be saved. And Paul gives the promises. Right here's, here's his summary of those verses that I gave you. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from them and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so you say, but Israel's unbelieving. Did God forsake his promises? They had all these things, right? They had the covenants, the law, the adoption, the glory. To them belong the adoption. What about them? And Paul is quick, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And right there, that, that little thing, I would encourage you to box that out or circle. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Not because that's such a great verse of promise, but that is the great logic behind everything. It is not that God's word has failed. The problem with Israel's unbelief isn't that God's promises have failed. It is that we have failed to understand the promises correctly. And Paul quickly moves on here to point out that God's promises were never made to ethnic Israel. They were made to spiritual Israel. That's what he says in 9.6. For, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, it's not all of the children of Israel who are recipients of this promise. And then he proves it. Not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But it's through Isaac your offspring shall be named. It's Isaac and not Ishmael. It's Jacob and not Esau. In other words, God's promises were to his chosen people within Israel ethnic Israel. And that's, that's his point right from Genesis. It was right at the beginning. It was, it was never all ethnic. It was always his chosen people. And that's where Paul then naturally uh, transitions to talk about election, his chosen ones. And these are the ones. It's Isaac he chose and not Ishmael. It's Jacob he chose and not Esau. And this goes down through the history of those Israelites. Is who did he choose? And he says in verse 15, 
I'll choose whom I want. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And through the gospel, this mercy then, and God's choice extended then to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have attained a righteousness through faith, but the Jews didn't. They sought a righteousness of their own. They failed to gain it. Verse 31, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? They did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. They sought the righteousness of God, but they sought it the wrong way. They sought it by works. They sought themselves to be arrogant. They sought themselves to have it all their way. They didn't trust the Lord anymore. They trusted in their own way, and uh, they've walked in disobedience. So that we get, by the end of chapter 10, we get this statement. Of Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. These people are contrary. They're, they're leaving. And God has got his arms open wide waiting for them. And the promise of chapter 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But they're not calling on the name of the Lord. God's waiting. And so we come to chapter 11 and says, what, what then? Has God rejected his people? And the answer comes... By no means. God has not rejected his people. That is my sermon title. It comes right there from the question, but more particularly it comes from verse 2. God has not rejected his people. And then Paul, along three lines, proves why it is that God has not rejected his people. And the first one comes from Paul. Proof from Paul is what I'm calling it. Continuing on in verse 1, we read this. I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, here's here's Paul's argument. God hasn't rejected his people because he hasn't rejected me. He said, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He could have added, like he did in Philippians 3, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. I've lived in accordance with God's law from the day of my birth. If anyone is Jewish, she says, I am. And I believe in the Messiah. And believing in the Messiah, I receive all of God's promises. I know of his blessings to me in Jesus. God hasn't rejected me. And if he hasn't rejected me, he hasn't rejected the Jews. This is known as a proof by example. Right? You demonstrate a question's true by, by giving an example. Uh, like, for instance, consider the following question. Is America rejecting immigrants today? Big political question. Is America rejecting immigrants today? And the answer to that is no, absolutely not. We're accepting immigrants today. You just need to talk to Carissa, who teaches ESL um, down in Bloomington, Illinois. And she's got a class of a dozen kids from all around the world, don't even speak English, who've come in the last two years that she is teaching we're not accepting it. And what do I do? I, I prove that by example, that we are accepting immigrants today. Or how about this one? Did dinosaurs really walk the earth? Yes. And how do you know? Well, you look at fossils and footprints. There's an example. Yes, they walked the earth. How about this one? Is the golden toad really extinct? Yes, but we don't know. But if you would show me a golden toad, then we'd say, no, it's not extinct. See, if you show an example, therefore that, that proves it. And that's Paul's argument. It's a proof by example. You can't say God has rejected his people because he hasn't rejected me. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know that God had every reason to reject him. 
In fact, I think that's one reason why he brings himself up as an example. Yes, he was religious. Yes, he was zealous. Yes, he was motivated by the glory of God, but it all was misplaced. His understanding of God's glory was amiss. See, he, he saw Jesus not as the Messiah, but as a deceiver. He saw him as a, as a liar. He considered Jesus to be a, a heretic, claiming to be God's son, claiming to be God in the flesh, when in fact he wasn't. And he thought, logically then, if Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, he deserves to be killed. And, of course, Jesus was already killed. He was in line of the Pharisees, and they're thinking at the time, but he even went far as to say, if anyone follows this heretic, they need to be killed as well. And, and Paul was there when Stephen was stoned, giving hearty approval to everything that was happening. And so with Paul's zeal, then, he went about ravaging the church. He entered house after house after house, dragging men and women off to prison because they were following the way of Jesus. Paul thought he was defending the glory of God, where really he was resisting the will of God, and yet, despite all this, God didn't reject Paul. He was on the road to Damascus. The Lord called him. He was on his way to find men and women who could bind and bring back to Jerusalem. He had official records and summons from Jerusalem to do that. His plan was to bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners of the state, have a trial, perhaps be executed. But the very moment of Paul's greatest rebellion against the Lord, Jesus appeared to him with a bright light from heaven. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, which was his name before he changed it to Paul, why are you persecuting me? He's touching the church. The church is the body of Christ. Why are you persecuting me? So the Lord struck him blind. He had to be led into the city by the hands of others, of his friends, where he sat for three days without sight, without food, without water, thinking and comprehending and praying and sifting through all the scriptures that he had, he had known and memorized and thought about. And then a man named Ananias came to him, told him of God's grace towards him and his work that God had for him to do. And, and at this time, God was doing great work in his heart. He transformed him from being an antagonist to the gospel to one of the greatest advocates for the gospel. He regained his sight, went into the synagogue in Damascus, confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He later did the same in Jerusalem. And the Bible in the book of Acts just records how from that moment on, the Lord used him mightily, bringing the gospel to many cities, planting countless churches, writing 13 books of the Bible. No, God didn't reject Paul. He reformed him. And Paul's life rests as an example for us. That's what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 through 16. Paul says this, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. Why did God show grace to Paul? Why did he receive mercy that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's the example of one who's totally rejecting God, but how God did not reject him, but overcame him with just amazing grace that saved him. So I want you to do this, just even by way of application. Think of someone in your mind for which you have zero hope. 
I mean, this person is so far gone that there is, is no hope. Without God, fighting against the Lord, filthy language, secular worldview. Maybe you this morning. Maybe a friend, maybe a relative, maybe an acquaintance, maybe a coworker. But listen, if God saved Paul, then God can save anybody. God hasn't rejected his people. Paul is an Israelite. He saved him. But he of who he is was the foremost of sinners and he can save anybody. So what I do right now is just, if you got that person in your mind, let, let's just let's close your eyes, bow your head. Why don't you pray for that person? Pray that God would open his eyes or her eyes to the glory of Jesus. Think about in this room, a hundred people being prayed for who are like the Apostle Paul, without God, without hope. And Father, we know you didn't reject Paul. You had every reason to reject him. And these people in our minds, you have every reason to reject them. God, and yet I pray like you did a work in the Apostle Paul, that you do a work in the lives of these people that are on our minds that we've prayed for. God, open hearts. Oh, God, I pray. God, open our mouths to be bold with the gospel with them. I pray even this week you'd give opportunities to speak the gospel of these people. God, that you, by your grace, would, would open a heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Paul goes on to his second point. We see proof from Paul that God has not rejected his people. We see proof from Elijah that he's not rejected his people. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. What's God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And to illustrate that God has not rejected his people, Paul refers to Elijah. His story is told in 1 Kings 17 through 19. And and I trust many of you remember this story because Eric Laurier, who was here three weeks ago, preached right from this passage about encouragement from Elijah. And Elijah tells a story of one who had great ministry success, And great ministry discouragement as well. So picture the scene. I just want to tell a story. Through the Lord, Elijah predicts drought to King Ahab. He says, 1 Kings 17, 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah basically said, I'm the weatherman. Not the one who tells you what the weather will be, but the one who causes the weather. And I'm going to say there's going to be no rain, and rain is not going to come until I say so. And for three years, there was no rain in the land. Caused a great famine in Samaria, caused great hardship upon Ahab, stirred great anger towards Elijah. But after three years of no rain, the Lord came to Elijah and said, okay, time's up. (laughs) Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. But Elijah and God had made the point. First Kings eighteen seventeen. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It is you, you troubler of Israel. 
And Elijah answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel's got your queen, right? Has got all these, these prophets. You bring them all with me to Mount Carmel. And so it was Elijah against them all, 850 prophets. And Elijah was on his way up to Mount Carmel. He called out to the people. So picture Jesus, right, going along the cross to his crucifixion, right, when the people were wailing and Jesus crying for them. This is, this is Elijah going up to Mount Carmel, not to be crucified, but to, to minister and show God's power. But along the way, he's talking to the people. And he says, how long will you go be limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Huge discouragement. Elijah was the only one faithful to the Lord. He said, even there on the way up, he said, 1 Kings 18, 22, I... Even I only am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. The challenge he set up. You know the challenge. He says, let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces. Lay it on the wood and put it. No fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and lay wood on, on it and no fire to it. And you call upon your God. And I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers, he is God. There's the challenge. And he basically gave these guys all day. And no fire came down. And they ran around and they did the Indian war dance and all this sort of stuff. They just did it all. They cut themselves. And Elijah mocked them. Maybe your God is gone. Maybe your gods are on vacation. Maybe they're in the restroom. Maybe you need to shout louder. They didn't. Didn't work. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah then prayed to God. And God consumed the sacrifice Upon his altar, which, by the way, he had doused with water. <clears throat> the fire was so intense, it licked up all the water around. First Kings 18.39 reads this, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Right? How fickle that is. And as fickle as they started, they, they did finish as, as well. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. 450 prophets. I don't know how the one man did it. Maybe it was the uprising of the people that said the Lord is God. And they helped him. That's what I suspect. But with that, the rain comes. And uh, one would think that Elijah's top on, on the top of the world, right? The Jews repent of their sin and follow Christ. That was not the case. Jezebel didn't say, wow, he's God, Jezebel with whom these prophets ate at her table, was extremely distressed and furious at what Elijah had done, that he had killed her beloved prophets, and so she sought to kill him. And now all of a sudden, Elijah, after this great ministry success, was on the run. And after a day's journey into the wilderness, he sat under a broom tree, and he was lonely, and he asked the Lord to die. First Kings 19.4 It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. But God was gracious and provided for him. Food, water, nourishment, what he needed, kept him alive. Forty days later, he journeyed out, came to a cave at Horeb, where he again expresses his discouragement. First Kings 19.10, he's praying to God. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, Am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
He said that exact same thing twice. Oh, Lord, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And it's in that context where the promise comes. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, Elijah may have felt alone, but it was only his feeling because he was not alone. He may have felt like he was the only one who served the Lord, but it wasn't true. God was working beyond Elijah in ways that Elijah just couldn't see or couldn't know. He promised that there were 7,000 others who were following the Lord. And that's exactly the promise that Paul tells in verse 4. What is God's reply? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And notice carefully the language. I have kept for myself. This is sovereignty. Romans 9 through 11 can only be understood when you understand the absolute sovereignty of God in matters of salvation. This is God exerting His will upon the wills of people to give life to His people, to guarantee that there will always be a remnant of His people. It takes us back to verse 2 in a phrase we skipped. I'm not sure if you saw it. We skipped this phrase because I wanted to bring it up now. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. These are the people beforehand that he loved, that he predestined to come to Christ. We saw that earlier in Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the unbreakable chain of salvation. It goes from foreknowledge to predestination to calling, to justification, to glorification. And it's done in God's hand because He is sovereign. And we made the point back then that foreknowledge isn't looking down the quarters of time to see who would choose Him. Because He knows everybody. It proves too much. He knows everybody and He predestines then everybody. And everybody's called and everyone's justified and everyone's glorified. No, what it means to foreknow is that it's more for love. This is, these are the ones upon whom He's cast His favor. As Amos 3.2 says, You only, Israel, have I known among all the families of the earth. It's not that Israel was the only nation. It's that they were the only nation upon which God was going to extend His favor. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. You will be the one. And that's what God says to Elijah. On the earth at all times, there will be 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal I have kept them for myself. Notice, the only way that this can happen is if God is sovereign in saving people. It only happens if God is sovereign enough to make that promise, make that happen. It didn't just happen. God God wasn't saying, oh, well, there will always be 7,000 people who will bow the knee. As if, you know, he's got some whatever, randomness enough. There will always be about half men and half women on the earth. He's not saying that. He's not saying that we're not playing the percentages here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I will cause, I will keep 7,000 people for myself. That is God ensuring that there's always 7,000, exerting his will and keeping them. I want to tell you the story of another frog This one's called the mountain yellow-legged frog. 
uh, medium-sized amphibian, one and a half, three and a quarter inches long. So your, your typical frog, this is not a big bullfrog, this is just a, a normal frog like you'd get. Females are slightly larger than, than males. They're highly aquatic, and they're almost always found within three feet of water. I mean, you can even see the, the frog's whatever skin. It looks oily and slimy like many frogs do because right there near, near water. They can be found sitting on rocks along the shoreline. Even where there's little or no vegetation is where they live, these uh, yellow-legged frogs. Typically, they live in high altitudes, 4,500 to 12,000 feet. And, and like the golden frog, they're in danger of extinction. And most of these frogs are, are found on the, the national forest and national park lands in, in western uh, Sierra Nevada, some near Fresno County, California. And, and a portion of this region where these frogs are lie right on the Pacific Crest Trail. I'm not sure if you know about the Pacific Crest Trail, but it's this bucket list pie-in-the-sky dream that I have of someday hiking it with Yvonne, whether we can ever do that or not, to take the five months to hike it. I don't know. But miles 300 and it's a 2,400-mile walk is what it is. But on miles 390 to 394, there's a path closure. There's this sign right here that says this. Notice, in an effort to allow the U.S. Forest Service to follow guidelines for protecting the habitat of the mountain yellow-legged frog an endangered species, this area is closed until further notice. You see what's happening there? you got the U.S. government, the Forest Service, whatever, imposing its will upon hikers and saying, you can't go here. This is safe domain for the yellow-legged frog. We're going to try to do everything we can to protect them and guard them and keep them alive away from human intervention. You cannot go here. And that's a, a little bit of a picture of, of what it is in, um, in verse 5 and, and verse 4 about what, what God is, is doing. He is keeping the 7,000, and particularly he's keeping 7,000 Israelites. Look, look at verse 5, how, how Paul transitions from then to now, or then till his time, which I think comes to now too. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant Chosen by grace. See, Paul considered the promise to Elijah as a permanent promise. True even in the days of Paul to the present time. And if it was true from Elijah to the days of Paul, it's true from the days of Paul until now that God will always have a remnant of Jews who believe in the Messiah. See, in Paul's day, there may have been only a few Jews who believed in the Messiah, but we know the numbers was the thousands, the day of Pentecost, right? 3,000 believed. After that, pretty soon, it was up to 5,000 Jews believing in the Messiah that we have recorded in the book of Acts. And I know that there were at least 2,000 more who believed after that because of this promise. And in Paul's day, there may have been just 7,000. May have been more. But he knows that there are are more. He knows that that God hasn't rejected his people. Because there's always this remnant of believing Jews. What's true in Paul's day is true in our day. The the population of Jewish believers will never dip below 7,000. Now, it may get close. It may not even get close. Maybe this is poetic of just there will be a lot, always. And so even if you think about, right, application of this, you really see that, that God's got his hand on the Jewish nation 
He's got a remnant always. There will always be a remnant there. But do you realize that God has his hand on every nation that walks on the earth? Listen to the promise of, of Revelation chapter 7. It's not necessarily a promise. This is, this is what John saw. He says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Every tribe, every language, every nation, God's got his hands. Maybe it's not 7,000 from every tribe, but it is a representative of everyone. In fact, it says that in, in Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Every tribe will have his people in heaven. Every nation, every tongue you'll hear spoken in heaven. So God doesn't just, just preserve Israel, he preserves all nations. We don't know how big that remnant is. In Israel, it's 7,000. And there may be only a few representatives. But, but here, here's, here's where it should give you comfort to know that, that of all the peoples on the earth, or all the peoples from the earth that have come to Rockford, that are in your sphere, that are in your neighborhoods, that God's got his hand on someone from their nation, and it might be them. You could bring the gospel to them, hoping, trusting, praying. God, may, may this man, right, from an immigrant, whatever, some other, may this man, may this woman be one of your remnant from that tribe. May they be there. And you have confidence that God's grace will break through because it is God's grace. Look, look at how verse 5 ends. So, too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. That's the whole point of the remnant. It's God's grace upon Israel. And that comes to my last point. We've seen proof from Paul. We've seen proof from Elijah. We've seen proof from grace. Verse 6 picks up that last phrase, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, God's faithfulness to the Jews is based on grace. That's what salvation is. It's based on grace to us. We saw it in Paul. God had every reason to reject him. Paul's a blasphemous insulter of God, but God showed him grace and mercy instead. Saved him from his sins. We saw it in the time of Elijah. God had every reason to reject the people of Israel. They were off pursuing other gods. Even seeing the great manifestation of, of the Lord, eventually, right, they, they turned away. Seeing, I mean, that's the story of Israel. They've always turned away. And yet God showed them grace and mercy instead. He's always preserved a remnant of Jews for himself. That's God's saving way. He saves by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of the works that no one should boast. And that's what verse 6 is saying. If it's by grace, it's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is what God gives us when we don't deserve it. He, he's just leaping and, and heaping upon us blessings that we don't deserve. Particularly here, the blessing of salvation. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness... But according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's not the works we do. It's not the righteousness we obtain. It's the mercy and grace that come from God. And in Romans, Paul has made this point several times. Romans 3.24 says that we're justified by his grace as a gift. He's given it to us. 
While we were yet sinners is when he gave that to us. While we were enemies against him, Romans 5, 8, and 10. Or, or Romans 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but was due. Right? If you work for it, God gives us what we deserve. But that's not how salvation works. But if it is to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's believing, it's trusting, it's God's grace that he saves us. Romans 4.16, that's why it depends on faith in order the promise may rest on grace. Faith is nothing we do. It's just believing and trusting God. It's not pursuing our own. It's saying, God, I just, I, I trust you. I trust Jesus. And that comes to us. God saves us by his grace. It's the, the point of the sovereignty of God. It's the point of these chapters 9 through 11. It, it's not due <laughs> Due to us and what, what we have done, our salvation comes by, by God's grace alone. Okay, I want to talk about a, a third and final animal. Perhaps you've seen this uh, past, I mean, I, mean, I mean animal, I mean, I, mean, bur- I mean a Canadian geese. You realize that these were on the endangered list and they're protected today? It's amazing that they're protected, Right? There, there are several subspecies of these geese. They're, they're, they're giant. They, they fly in a, a V-shaped pattern. You've seen that. And they squawk and they'll hiss at you and they'll, they'll go at you. Um, but they're protected. And here's their legal status. Canadian geese, I'm reading from Illinois.gov or something. Canadian geese are federally protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act. They're also protected by the Illinois Wildlife Code. In urban areas, Canadian geese may not be removed. Okay, I won't be upset, though, if you run into some of them out here in the parking lot. As they, they get there. They're a nuisance, right? They, they drop their droppings, and they kind of come and take over, and they bother you. And In rural areas, hunting can help control populations of Canadian geese, an Illinois hunting license, Illinois waterfowl stamp, federal fowl stamp, and registration with the Harvest Information Program are required. You have to have like five stamps in order to, to hunt these guys. But you know what? They're a picture of grace. I mean, they didn't deserve to have the Migratory Bird Treaty Act help them, did they? But it is this big protection upon them. Let them flourish. Let them grow. Let them go. And, and they have... Someday that will change. I'm looking forward to that day. But that's a picture of what Paul is getting at when he's talking about Israel and grace to them. Look over at verse 26. Okay, We'll get to this, but this is where Paul is getting at. And I haven't really answered the question yet. Uh, so much so that has God rejected his people? No, he's not rejected them. In fact, the message is this, is that he is going to prosper them greatly like Canadian geese. <clears throat> Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All the Canadian geeks are saved from people killing them. And all Israel will be saved. That is, there is a day when Israel will be a Christian nation. Now, we'll talk about this in the the future, but there are some who think that God is done with the Jews. It's called replacement theology. 
oftentimes comes with amillennialism that just says, no, that's all done. It's, Israel's out of the way. But this shows that God is not departed from his people. God will save all Israel. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And all those old covenant promises that I, that I will be your God and you will be my people will all come true in Jesus for Israel. God has not rejected his people. We see that proof from Paul. We see that proof from Elijah. And we see that proof from grace. Well, this morning is interesting. We're going to see some baptisms. And the baptisms we're going to have are going to come from some younger folk. Uh, Stephanie is going to be baptized today. And uh, Gage Wiebe is going to be baptized today. And Ruthie Reet is going to be baptized today. And uh, so you think about these, maybe not as Israelites, because they aren't. They're Gentiles. Um, but there is a manifestation of being in the church. There's something Israel knew about all this stuff. They had all the blessings, but many of them turned away. But God has not rejected his people, and God has not rejected our children either. What a, a joy it is to see. And so I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have each of them come up uh, with their dads. who will be baptizing them. And uh, just uh, the dads will just even speak about confirming them as well, but they see the life of Christ in them as well. So let me pray. Father, I would pray that as we work through Romans 11, this, this theologically intricate chapter, it's difficult to apply. I pray, God, that you would stir in our hearts of a, of a heart of application for evangelism. God, to speak with those without Christ, knowing that you have your remnant, particularly even if we come across someone who we find out is Jewish. God, just know that God, you have Jewish people for yourself. And God, know that if you can save someone like Paul, you can save anybody. God, so give us boldness and assurance that the salvation doesn't depend upon us, but it depends upon you as you stir and transform the heart. So God, I pray in your grace that you would transform people. I pray for people in this church, that you would do this well for children particularly, but perhaps there are adults here who are are really nominal in their Christianity, just, just kind of coming, really don't know about the glories of Jesus. So God, be with us and help us. Help us to know how to apply these things. God, but I, I pray that we might relish in the promises that are true to Israel and will be to us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.